Okay, so you heard Rob uh, quote the Tin Booms. I really love their story. Christ is all you need, but you don't realize that until Christ is all you have. One of the challenges in the, uh, the church is being raised as a Christian. That's a challenge for leaders. When we were in Germany, we ran a hospitality house with a bunch of soldiers. Most of the soldiers that came to our house didn't have a faith background. They were as uncouth as you can get, pagan as you can, want, you can imagine. And we got to lead them to Christ. And every now and then we have a Christian walk in, and we almost hated it. I'm not going to lie to you. Because they had all the answers. And their life wasn't any different. My daughter, when she went to a Christian college in Boston, she came home for Christmas after her first semester, and she said, Dad, I was kind of angry with you all semester. And I said, why? And she said, well, here I am in my Bible classes, and all the students knew the answers. I didn't know any of the answers. And she said, how is it my dad has a PhD in biblical studies, and I don't know these answers? But then as the semester wore on, they still had all the answers but they didn't care that much. Their life wasn't any different. And every week, the more I learned, the more excited I got. And she said, did you do that on purpose? I said, eh, in effect, yes. You know, yeah, we did. We had already seen the, the um, um, I don't know what the word is, we had seen the byproduct of kids raised in Christian homes, especially missionary kids, preacher's kids, all that. And she was experiencing it firsthand. Do you want to get to the bottom? Do you want to wait till you're at the bottom to appreciate that Jesus is all you need? Is that what you want? I mean, God's perfectly happy to take you to the bottom. I've seen it many times. Take away jobs, take away all kinds of things. But is that really what you want? You want God to take you all the way down so you have nothing left? And that's when you begin to really appreciate Jesus is all you need. Think about that. It's a powerful thing that he quoted this morning. It's very powerful. And I've watched so many Christians over the years just kind of dance their way through life without any real, deep, heartfelt need that all I have is Christ. And I'll be honest, the older we get, as you begin to age, this is a warning for you young people, and you begin to accumulate things, and pretty soon you have a little safety buffer. When I married my first wife, you know my story, Judy died, my first wife, and we were so poor, I remember opening the fridge, and there was nothing in the fridge but a jar of mayonnaise. I remember that. And I remember getting on my knees with her and just praying, Lord, if you don't feed us today, then we won't eat tonight. Then I hear her ruffling at the door. She was terminally ill. And I opened the door, and my assistant pastor at my church was standing there with two bags of groceries and a piece of paper with their address on it. He looks up and he goes, I suppose it's too late to be anonymous, huh? <laughs> but I remember those days. I remember clinging to the Lord and begging for his help. Is that where you want to get to? So we decided to start saving and giving. We saved $5 a month, and the goal is to get to the place where we could afford one tire on our car if it blew up. 
And when we did that, we took that $5 and went to eat. Went to Taco House in Denver, still there, and spent $5 and bought six tacos and celebrated. But I remember being at the bottom. I've never forgotten that. Is that what you want to do is get to the bottom before you finally realize that Jesus is not only all you need, but really all you have in a fallen world? We're looking through the parables today. Greg, thank you for reading Psalm 78. The parables. Who were Jesus' enemies? What's your first instinct? Pharisees? I get it. He didn't mind taking them to task. He was gentle with the widows, orphans, children, disenfranchised, poor, diseased, and sick, and he was ruthless with the leaders. Does that mean they were his enemy? No, I don't think it does. We're going to see a parable today. It's in Luke 15. If you want, you can join me there. It's a parable you've heard many times. Luke 15, verse 3, then Jesus told them, it's a twin parable actually, told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Okay, pause. This summer, we're focusing on the messiness of the kingdom. These parables talk about the kingdom in the present world. One day in eternity, it'll be perfect, but we're not there yet. And it's messy. And I've used the metaphor of Edith Schaefer's tapestry. On the backside of a tapestry, it's a mess. Threads hanging out everywhere. That's what we see. That's the world we live in. Because we live in a natural world that's fallen. And the Lord has asked us to learn to live in a spiritual world. We've been raised with Christ. Ephesians chapter 2. If anyone is in Christ, they're already part of the new creation. 2 Corinthians 5. And what God sees is the front side of the tapestry. So we're going to dance in this messy part right here because the kingdom is messy in the world that we live. We are distracted by everything. Theologians are calling it weapons of mass distraction. That is Satan's primary tool, deceit. This is an illusion of goodness here. It's not. If you saw this county the way I see it after all the coffees, beers that I've had, You'll see it's a very, very, very broken county under the surface. And I don't want you to get to the bottom. I don't want you to have to go there to appreciate it. One of the things we started doing back in Germany with our young soldiers that were raised in Christian homes, we said we need to give them a vicarious experience with sin so they can see what they avoided. So we took them to the main park in Frankfurt where they handed out needles. Drug dealers could come there where it was safe. Hospice centers for gay men who were dying got to watch their partner lay in bed with them, clean them when they only had a few days left to live. Soup kitchens where the poor came and had nothing to eat because we had to shake them out of that 
false sense that everything's okay because I'm American. I don't want you to get to the bottom. But I'll tell you what, I'd rather you get to the bottom if that's what it takes. To really grab hold of the concept, Jesus is not only all you need, he's actually all that you have. I'm perfectly happy to see you go bankrupt. Oh, I'll cry with you. But on the inside, as a pastor, I say, Lord, I pray for you all the time. Be merciful, be kind, be generous, but teach them your ways. That's what a shepherd does. The parable goes on. He gives a second one. Suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp? Sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Okay, now the very next verse is the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. We looked at that a couple weeks back, didn't we? And we said, okay, let's put this parable in the context. What's the opening verse in the chapter? He says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. He's surrounded by the the criminals, the ruffians. He's the, the despised people, the people that the respected people wanted nothing to do with. That's what a sinner was. We talked uh, last week, was it, about the the sinning woman who was washing his feet with her tears. These are the people in the dregs of society. This is who Jesus went after. Next sentence. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eat with them. Sometimes I'm afraid that we're closer to the Pharisees than we are the sinners and tax collectors. We know the rules. We know the laws. We know this book. And we're quite happy to live our insulated lives not branch out into a world that we don't want anything to do with. It's not always because we're selfish. It's just very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable to be in a world with pagans. It is. And so we have the contrast between the tax collectors and sinners on one side who are all eager to listen to Jesus, and then over on the side we have the Pharisees and the scribes of the law going, Really? Really? They're muttering to themselves, this man, he's welcoming sinners. In fact, he eats with them. Can you believe it? That's who he spends time with. So these parables are all designed to expose, expose not only your individual hearts, not only that, but to expose what a church looks like. I love the passage in 1 Peter 3 that loves to get thrown around. You know, the question about wives submitting? In the same way. In the same way as what? When you go back to the verse before it? Now be careful and hear with sensitivity what I say. Slaves obey your masters even if they treat you unfairly because this finds favor with God. Wives in the same way. Then guess what happens in verse 7? Husbands in the same way. Nobody's exempt from a fallen world. Nobody. Some of you have had husbands who are horrible. Some of you have had wives that are horrible. I get it. I get it. I've got one of those. No, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) She's wonderful. (laughs) 
I wouldn't be who I was without her. I love her dearly and deeply. (laughs) But you see what I'm saying is that no one is exempt from this fallen world. And so what does it take for you to really grasp this concept that Rob just talked about? Jesus is not only all we need, he's all we have. Okay, so let's take a second and look a little bit more detail about this parable because these things spring out. Okay, if you're standing there. So you're one of the Pharisees and you're standing here. This guy even eats with sinners, really? No self-respecting rabbi would do that. And what does Jesus do? Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep or suppose a woman has ten silver coins. Jesus picks the two people most despised in society. A shepherd. They weren't even allowed to testify in law. They're known as criminals, brigands. That's what they're known as. They're really unclean. I don't know about you. I wasn't raised on a ranch. But uh, animals smell different than I do most of the time. Okay, well, sheep really smell different. I've been around a few. They don't smell very good. And shepherds, they didn't smell good. He picks the one person. And then he says, a woman. Really? By this time in world history, one of these days I'm going to map it out historically. Haven't done it. But by this time in world history, women were so below. And that was never God's intent. There was no court of the women or court of the Gentiles in uh, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, or Solomon's temple. That came later. But by this time in history, women were at the bottom. So Jesus does a parable around the two people that the scribes and the Pharisees would not have ever associated with. I love it. It's especially, it's a double entendre. It's just awesome because Ezekiel 34 says to the leaders of of Israel, you shepherds, whoa, whoa. My sheep are wandering around like sheep without a shepherd. You have despised them. You kill them. You take advantage of them. You steal their stuff for your own good. That's what what the, the scribes and the Pharisees were doing. So not only did he pick two people for the parable that they would have despised, he picked the shepherds to start with because that's what they were supposed to be, to care for the flock. What do we know about sheep? They need leadership or they wander. They're sub-intelligent. And they stink. And that's the metaphor he used for you guys. (laughs) And me. And me, by the way. And it's such an honor to be a shepherd and to help you think all this through. He goes right to the heart of the scribes and Pharisees in all of these parables throughout here. All of it. Why? Is he trying to hurt them? No, he's trying to woo them back. They are going to find themselves in this picture because he says uh, he calls to his friends and neighbors when they find the sheep, when they find the coin. Rejoice with me, I have found uh, my lost sheep in the coin. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. Okay, now listen to this next phrase. Over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. Here he's talking about the leaders. Right here. And the word righteous all throughout Luke is talking about somebody, not a pagan or a Gentile. The righteous person is someone who believes in God. These Pharisees, they were trying to do their best. But the problem is, with their best, they missed the whole intent of the law. 
Their best still wasn't good enough. Matthew, in the Matthew version, he says, in Matthew, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the, the Pharisees, we got to do better than this. we got to do better. Teaching the right things is not good enough. We have to show you how to live our lives. When the elders first hired me, a little over 10 years ago, they asked me, okay, six months from today, we're going to know a lot more about you. What are people going to complain about? Isn't that a great question for an interview? And I said, oh, that I boast. And they said, that you boast? And I go, yeah, yeah. You know, I've, I've sat through 30 years or more of pastors telling these emotionally evocative stories that they get out of a book. I'm not going to do that. I have two sources to illustrate what I believe. One is right here, and the other one is my life. So I'm going to tell you when I have a conversation with somebody in a bar about Jesus. And some of you are going to think I'm boasting. I'm not boasting. I'm trying to illustrate it. I'm trying to help you see that I believe what's here. I believe what's in this book. And I want you to believe it. And I want you to learn what it means to walk into a bar and have a conversation. To get on an airplane on the way across overseas and have a conversation with somebody and have issues and challenges. On every trip, I have a challenge. You guys know that, that are members, every trip, and to trust the Lord because he is sovereign. Why did Paul tell us to do all things without grumbling and complaining? Because when you complain and grumble, the statement you're making is, I don't really trust God's sovereignty. Get used to it. It's a fallen world. Get used to it. Rather than complain about what's happening, why don't you turn around and say, okay, God, where are we going? What are we doing? You've heard the stories over the years, the people I've had a chance to talk with on these trips. People ask me now, do you ever get frustrated on these trips? Yeah, not at my age, not anymore. Not after 25 years of teaching overseas. In fact, if I get on an airplane and something goes wrong, I change what I'm going to talk about because it's not even important enough for Satan to come after me. To learning to trust when things don't go well. Not learning to complain. Learning to look at the Lord and say, okay, Lord, what's happening now? What's going on? God is pleased with a sinner who repents. More than a righteous person who doesn't need to repent. And that does describe the Pharisees, but it also includes them in this group that God loves. He treated them differently, but it's not because he didn't love them. They weren't his enemies. It just takes a different approach to win a righteous person over to the Lord. You won't realize that Jesus is enough until you get to the place when you realize Jesus is all you have. That's moving from this one group to this other group. And that's where you find joy. That's what the Beatitudes are all about. And these parables... They're just remarkable. I'm going to read to you a passage out of Isaiah 48. I've said many, many, many times up here over the 10 years that God has blessed us so we can be a blessing to others, right? He he has given us what we have. You're a steward. You're not an owner. You own nothing. Everything that you have was given to you by the Lord. He says, I decide who is rich. I decide who is poor. He says that. And everything he does in your life is designed to draw you to him. And the more you resist that, the harder life gets. Okay? So he goes after people. He never quits, ever. What's what's the answer to what about the pygmy in Africa that never hears about Jesus? It doesn't matter. 
If you are pursuing the Lord, he promises that you will find him. I've now heard hundreds and hundreds of stories in some of the most remote regions of the earth of how God intervened supernaturally to get the truth to them. That's how wonderful this gospel is, this good news. It is fantastic news. So here's one example with Isaiah, I mean, uh, with Israel and with Judah, who had betrayed. This is Isaiah, the second part of Isaiah, where they're now, in, they've been exiled. This is what he says to them. I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them and I made them known. Then suddenly I acted and they came to pass. Why did he do that? Why has he acted in your life? Here it is. For I knew how stubborn you were. And by the way, I'm included in this. Okay. There's been more than once I've prayed to the Lord. I am, I'm so sorry you had to take a baseball bat to me 250 times to get me to humble myself. I knew how stubborn you were. Your neck muscles were iron. Your forehead was bronze. Therefore, I told you these things long ago. Before they happened, I announced them to you so that you could not say, my images, my gods. Now, don't laugh. You don't have a metal god sitting on the shelf, but you have a bank account. You have a retirement fund. You have a nice house. You have a nice car. I have all those. It's so easy to put those right here in this place so that you could not say my own savings, investments, retirements, assets brought them about. Your safety is not because you have a safe savings account. Do you realize that? The story of Job is this story. At the end of Job's life, what did he say? Last thing Job said, where are you, God? If you would only come and listen, you would repent because you're wrong. God says, okay, here I am. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Surely you know because you were there. And he goes through a chapter and a half of these questions and Job says, I give, I repent. And God said, oh, no, 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 we're not done. We're not done. And then he asked the question that the whole book was moving toward, which describes all of our lives. Would you really annul my judgment? He didn't say Satan did this. Job never even knew that Satan existed, as far as we know. Probably had no clue. Directly to Job, would you really annul my judgment? I made this decision. And then Job repents, and he said the words that have governed all the way I look at this Bible. I spoke of things too wonderful for me to understand. There it is. Oh, when my first wife died, I was holding her in her heart stop, cried my eyes out. And I spent the next, I guess it's 40 years now, trying to figure out who this God is. And over time, I understand with greater clarity what he was doing. I was caring for a terminally ill wife full-time, full-time. All I did was work, take care of her and the kids. They were one in three when she died. Work, take care of her and the kids. I could have never done this if God hadn't healed her or taken her. So then I marry a woman who believes in me and says, God has gifted you. We need to get you to seminary. We need to get you trained. That's her pushing me. Did I understand it all at the time? No, I didn't. But as time went by and I began to read these verses in here, I realized that what happened with my first wife was too wonderful for me to understand. She knew it. She knew it. 
In our last conversation, she just blessed me richly just a couple days before she died. You're good, Jim. I didn't believe it. You know, the Lord's mercies are new every morning, so I want you to sing, Great is thy faithfulness at my memorial service. Because I want you to memorialize that in here. Lamentations. His mercies are new every morning. She goes, here's what that means. Every morning when you wake up, he wiped the slate clean. He didn't remember yesterday. It doesn't matter how stupid you were yesterday. Today you start all over again. That has carried with me all these years. And that's what he's talking about here. You've heard these things. Look at them all. Look at what God has done. Will you not admit them? From now on, I will tell you of new things, of hidden things unknown to you. And we read in Psalm 78, that Greg read this morning, I'm going to use parables to speak of new things, things of old. You see, these are not new. These are parables where he's luring the sinners and the tax collectors in. But he's also speaking a different language to the Pharisees and the scribes. You are included in this group. You're included in it. When you think of sharing the gospel, most of us get terrified, don't we? The thought of having a spiritual conversation. I've said this many times over the years. You know, God routes people into your life. Think of God as a cosmic traffic cop. Just think of him that way. Whoever he routes into your life, it's because you have something that they need. It could be a word of encouragement. It could be empathy. It could be tears. It could be laughter. It could be resources, finances. It could be something but you have what they need. Don't ever be afraid. You're afraid of the guy that's going to argue you back in the corner. And you can't answer the questions. That's the guys I get. I'm trained for it. I live for it. I love it. I love getting pushed back in the corner with technical or theological or spiritual arguments that are really conundrums. I love that. But I know that not all of you are that way. You know, a simple question opens the door. Do you have a faith background? Mine's Christian. I'm just curious. I'm not out to sell them Jesus. He doesn't need me to defend him. He does a good job on his own. And you see what in both of these people, the the shepherd who lost the sheep and the woman who lost the coin, what did they experience when they found the one coin or the one sheep? Deep joy. Deep joy. There's nothing like it in the world. When I was in Germany, I was taking seminary classes long distance, and I had to go share the gospel with three people and write up the report. So I went on post, army post, to Burger King. It's packed full. Surely I can find somebody here to share with. So I sat down, got a Coke, and sat down with my lunch and looked around, and I saw a senior enlisted guy sitting by himself. The place was packed. Ah, there's my target. That's how I was thinking. So I walked over to him determined to share the gospel and lost my nerve, walked up front, refilled my Coke. Came and sat back down. I go, well, that was really stupid. I could do this. I got up, walked over, lost my nerve, and went up and refilled my Coke. I sat down. I said, I'm a missionary for crying out loud. I get paid to do this. And I lose my nerve. No, I understood why Paul said pray for boldness. <laughs> so I got up the third time I walked over and I stopped and I said, excuse me, uh, I'm a missionary working on the post here with the chaplains. Do you have a minute to talk? And he goes, sure, I've seen. And I said, do you, uh, do you have a faith background at all? 
and he, his eyes filled with tears, and he goes, oh, he said, I'm leaving tomorrow. I'm going into combat, into a hostile situation. I have six kids at home. I don't know. I'm terrified. I've been awake for several nights, worried about what happens if I die? What happens if I'm not here? What happens if they die? Can you tell me that? And then I felt so embarrassed that my own pride was more important than the Lord's sovereignty and led him to Christ. You have nothing to be afraid of. You can ask anybody anywhere those questions. Why? Because you know at the heart of the gospel, it's really, really, really good news that God loves you so much you'll do whatever it takes short of violating your free will to lure you into a relationship because he wants to bless you. And that's what Jesus did. Even the Pharisees, you're in this story too. The prodigal son, the very next one, they're the son, they represent the son who got mad. And did the father turn his back on the other son? He goes, no. I've been with you from all this time. You get to enjoy all the riches too. He's luring him to a different place. You don't realize Jesus is all you need until you get to the place when you realize Jesus is all you have. Don't wait till you get to the bottom. Please, figure it out now. Father, thank you for your incredible goodness. Thank you, Lord, for all these parables talking to all these people about how messy this world is. I'll be the first to confess to you, Lord, that this world is, ooh, sometimes it's hard not to be depressed, and I see people all around me depressed, struggling, frustrated, hurting, scared, anxious, hostile, rude, crude. Lord, they don't know. They don't know about you and your goodness. Lord, help us as a church. Help us to really begin to understand even more how, how blessed we are to have you as our God. Thank you for all that you do for us. And then give us the incredible privilege of loving others and sharing that with them. Thank you.